Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. We are continuing our special December series this week, and today our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Reverend Dr. Anne Clements. Anne originally trained as a teacher and then spent 10 years teaching in mainland China. She was ordained in 2006 as Minister of West Kingsdown Baptist Church, and she received her PhD on the women in Matthew's Gospel in 2012 from Spurgeon's College in the UK. Today, Lynn and Anne are discussing Anne's book, Mothers on the Margin, the significance of the women in Matthew's genealogy. Anne, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alabaster Jar. Um, I, I feel like in a way I know you because I've spent uh, two weeks absorbed in your book, Mothers on the Margins, as I was looking at um, the women in Matthew's genealogy. And now I get a chance to actually talk with you about the book. And I'm so excited. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Alabaster Jar. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Lynn. It's, it's great to uh, just have this opportunity to chat with you a little. Well, thank you. And I uh, can't recommend enough your book, Mothers uh, on the Margins, looking closely at Matthew's genealogy. What, what prompted you to, uh, to study this part of scripture so carefully? Well, I'd already started thinking more generally about biblical women and how they were presented and sometimes that their lack of voice. Um, and uh, it just kind of struck me that whereas, you know, Luke, particularly, for instance, with Mary, we'll probably come on to her, you get an awful lot about her. And I mean, John's gospel, you you get Mary mentioned at the beginning and end of the gospel, you get the Samaritan woman and others, you come to Matthew, and there's not an awful lot of exposure to, to women. Um, and then it struck me that there, right at the beginning in the genealogy, in what are called his annotations to what is a patrilineal genealogy, you know, male begets male, there are these four women. Uh, and I, that just struck me. I thought, well, why are they there? And the reason that I was kind of so interested in all this was because as a woman scholar myself, and in the past I'd been a teacher and I'd been in mission, but then felt God calling me into Christian ministry as, as a minister within the Baptist church, there were some who had problems with that. And I have various sort of texts thrown at me, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, I really need to start to dig in here and to see how I understand various women within the biblical text. But these four women really just sprang out at me as being unusual. What what were they doing there? How did they relate to Mary, the fifth woman in the genealogy? And, and why had Matthew included them? Yes, those women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and as Matthew uh, calls her, the wife of Uriah, which we will take a look at each one of those in a moment. I have to confess to you that when this passage is preached on, I tend to hold my breath because <laughs> I know that some, <laughs> from my perspective, some really unhelpful exegesis is coming. Yeah. What are the typical ways that women in the genealogy are viewed? And talk about why that's unsatisfactory from our okay. point of view. Yeah. Well, 
it's got a long history, Lynn, but going right back to the early church fathers, the women were portrayed as reprehensible sinners or um, women who were famed for some bad thing. And since then, right through the centuries, the women have tended to be seen as sexually scandalous. Today, we could say they were skeletons in the cupboard of the Messiah. Um, and basically portrayed, Jesus came to save sinners. These women are archetypal sinners. It kind of ignores the men in the genealogy, right? <laughs> well, uh, there. see, that's the thing. That's part of the reason I hold my breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I kind of explode that in my book and make it clear that that is not the way they're presented in their Old Testament stories. And the second one, which is pretty popular today, is that all the four Old Testament were Gentile women. And this has a lot to commend it because obviously in Matthew's gospel, at the end of the gospel, Jesus sends out his disciples into all the world. Um, but actually, again, when I looked at their stories, although the first three women, uh, Tamar, Rahab and Ruth, they are clearly Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanite women and Ruth is a Moabite woman. I came to Bathsheba and I thought, no, just because she's married to a Hittite, that doesn't make her a, a Gentile. And actually, Bathsheba, Bathsheba is a Hebrew name. And actually, I think she was probably the granddaughter of King David's advisor. So I don't consider that she was Gentile. So although I think it's got something to commend it I don't think it explains all four women um, and obviously it means that Mary is left out as well because clearly she wasn't Gentile right and yet I think there's a connection between all five women there um, and then the last one is that uh, all the four women foreshadow Mary they were all in uh, a difficult position. Um, some of them, you could say, were very scandalous sexually. Again, it's that sort of theme coming out. And Mary herself, obviously, she was pregnant um, while engaged to Joseph, but not yet married to him. And that put her also in a scandalous position. But I argue that actually Mary is, is, is completely innocent because she had no sexual relations whatsoever until she had Jesus um, and therefore you really can't compare to that these women in that sense and I don't accept that version of the four women in the first case well right and Matthew makes it clear to the readers as does Luke that uh, Mary Mary is indeed very innocent and she is obedient to what God has for her and so if we follow what the biblical text is saying about her she has an amazing encounter with an angel and then a unique human experience where she is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And you're right, we can lose track of all of that amazing confirmation of her godly character if we get sidetracked on, well, but you know, she's an unwed mother. She's yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if we'll have time to get into the whole betrothal um, uh, expectations in the ancient world, but Joseph thought of quote unquote divorcing her even yeah. though they weren't technically married but that signals to us just how important the betrothal was and how 
uh, committed the two of them were. It's not like today where we are engaged and people break off their sure. engagement. Sure. So she she was yeah. actually considered to be his his wife because the yes. angel when she he speaks to Joseph says your wife, and mm-hmm. um, my understanding is that in a betrothal she would be his wife but still living in her father's house for the first year of that betrothal until she was taken into Joseph's wife uh, house and they actually had sexual relations so yeah right. she was essentially his wife at that stage that's right that's right yeah well you asked what i thought was just the excellent question of why matthew included these particular women in jesus's genealogy and and as you explored um explored the answer to that question why these women can you can you talk a little bit about your method of discerning what what to make of matthew's choice sure sure well it can struck me that in the past they've these four women have tended to be all lumped together as one group and I wanted to look at each individual woman's life if you like and so I decided to use a narrative methodology and go back to their Old Testament stories and try and see how each of these women were characterized you know what 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 characterized these women as as people and um, I, I was surprised, actually. The first one, Tamar, I kind of must have read her story. I've, I've been Christian, well, ever since I can remember, since I was little, you know. <laughs> and, um, and yet there she was, actually pronounced by Judah, you are more righteous than I am. Uh, and we can perhaps go into her story a little bit later on if we've got time. But she is characterized as righteous because she in her relationship to actually her dead husband and also Judah's clan, she was seeking to repair the fabric, the social fabric of that clan by bearing children. And she is declared righteous. And it struck me, I thought, wow, righteousness is a pretty key theme in Matthew's gospel, right? Uh, Look at the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's a key aspect of discipleship that Jesus looks for in his disciples and I thought well that's interesting and then you come on to Rahab and you see that she in her story is the first to declare faith in the Lord of heaven and earth not the spies and she's the first one who says I I, you know I believe that you can conquer this land Um, and then as we know she she hires the spies and she has incredible faith and courage and and faith obviously is a key discipleship theme and she's always also the first one it talks about chesed loving loyalty Um, and that takes us on to Ruth and that's the main characteristic of Ruth that she practices loving loyalty to Naomi um, in all she does. And again, I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the story of Ruth. Uh, And that kind of translates to the word mercy in the New Testament in the Greek. And again, Jesus talks about mercy quite a lot. Um, And he challenges the scribes and Pharisees, if you had known what mercy was, and uh, 
you know, uh, he talks about mercy again as a key characteristic he seeks for on those who want to follow him. So those are the first three women. And it struck me that all, there they were, they were gentle outsiders. Okay, Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar slept with her father-in-law, but I argue that as a Leverite widow, he was the closest male relative and therefore she had no choice but to actually try and produce a child for that family clan. And then Ruth, well, Ruth's slightly different, of course. We all love Ruth, don't we? And we all think that she's she's a wonderful woman. We don't tend to sort of look down on her. But she she was really a tough lady. Can you imagine gleaning for eight, nine hours a day in full heat of the day, right through barley harvest, right through wheat harvest, two or three months, I mean, and then having to winnow and carry the seed back to her mother-in-law day after day. And and then, of course, she takes a tremendous risk at her mother-in-law's behest of going at night to a threshing floor and lying down by a male. Well, that's a pretty risky thing to do, isn't it? So those are the three women. Bathsheba, we don't know very much about, right? It's we. There's a huge question mark over Bathsheba's story. And she is often characterised as the one who seduced David. But in my analysis, I try and make clear that the text shows us that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And that actually Nathan's parable, the little lamb was innocent. And that little lamb, I suggest, is equivalent to Bathsheba. So, um, but Bathsheba is the mother to the son of David. None of his other wives. She is the one who bears Solomon. What was that telling us? Um, and so I just found it really interesting to see that these women fed into themes in Matthew because they're all on the margins, uh, all on the margins in some way in their lives. And I think marginality, Jesus, who did he go to? Those on the margins, you know, the leper, the sick, um, the blind, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. No, you're the whole absolutely. Lot. That's, that's exactly right. Exactly right. And I think by looking at what struck me so much is by looking at these categories of righteousness and mercy, everyone who studies Matthew would say, yes, that, that mm. are key themes in the gospel. And you, you say, all right, well, if they're key things in the gospel, am I seeing that also in the women that are mentioned? Is that why they're mentioned? And it just, to me, again, it just made, it seems so utterly sensible. Why didn't I, <laughs> you know, see that before? Because um, it connects then these women then become part of the entire fabric of Matthew's gospel. They're not segregated to just, oh, here's a genealogy, right? But they're, they, they show us what true discipleship can be and why maybe, since it runs in Jesus's family, this righteousness and this, this plea for righteousness before God and this call to mercy that we then see in Jesus's own ministry. Like, well, yeah, that's, that's part of his heritage that he carries. So it, to me, it stresses the, the discipleship component of women uh, in, in the whole of the Bible that so often uh, I feel interpreters miss because they have, there's almost, women are almost two-dimensional yeah. uh, and they, they get stuck in these categories. As you mentioned, often it's about uh, their sexual 
uh, behavior. Um, and so they're sexualized. They're sexualized in one way um, or another. I'd love to go back to um, talking a little bit about Tamar. You hinted at it a little bit, but if you could fill out, you know, she, her, her story is complicated, but you actually bring out the, what, what is happening with her father-in-law so richly. And, and actually Tamar is the one that redirects him, puts him back on the right path. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. We need to establish that this isn't the sort of princess Tamar. This is the Tamar in Genesis 38. So um, she is brought into the family to marry his eldest son. And um, yet yeah, he dies. And then she is given, as was the custom in those days, to the second son. And we're told that he also was evil. And he dies too. Um, and so then Judah says, mm, maybe this woman has a jinx on her. You know, I, she's married two of my three sons and they both died. And so he basically says, look, go back to your father's house. Um, and when my youngest son, Shua, grows up, I'll give you to him in marriage, as was the custom. So she's basically sent back in disgrace to her father's house. She apparently is barren, although, as we shall see, that it wasn't her that was barren. And she has to be provided for by her father. So she's what's called a leave-right widow, which is basically a widow-in-waiting. So she can't get married to anybody else. She's still under Judah's authority, um, and yet she's stuck in her father's house as a widow. And time goes on, and she eventually realises that she's not going to be given to his youngest son. Now, part of her responsibility to her dead husband or dead is to raise up a son for him so that his name and his line can continue. And of course, Judah himself has has no children, no no heirs, and that's so important in in those days to reduce an heir, and also for herself to really knit her into the fabric of Judah's clan. She needs to produce a son, and in her old age, who's going to look after her? Well, it'll be a son, won't it? So, all these things come together when she discovers that um, Judah's wife has died that he is going to go up to sheep shearing and there'll be festivities and probably a bit of drunkenness, etc., etc. And she takes the opportunity to disguise herself as a prostitute and she stands at the crossroads of the opening of the eyes, it's called. And Judah propositions her, says, I want to sleep with you. And she says, well, what, what will you give me? And she's canny. Um, she asks basically for proof of his identity. And he gives her the equivalent of his credit card or passport or something. And he says, look, I'll give you these. Um, and when I give you a present of a goat, you can give them back to me. So he has sex with her. He carries on. She goes back dresses up as she would as a widow in her normal role and she becomes pregnant 
But of course, when they go back to find the prostitute, he sends a friend off actually to do this, to find a prostitute at the crossroads. The friend comes back and says, well, I, I can't find anyone. Um, and so he says, oh, well, you know, she'll just have to keep my credentials. Um, three months later, Judah is told that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. Bring her out, let her be burnt, is his immediate response. And we're told that as she is being brought out to be burnt, she produces the credentials and says, the father of the child I'm carrying, although she's carrying twins actually, is this person and it's, it's Judah. And he says, she is more righteous than I am because I did not give her my youngest son. And to me, that just exploded the story. We've seen Tamar as this prostitute. And here, Judah, you know, is saying she's more righteous. She's more in the right than I am because she has been loyal to her responsibility, to her dead husband and to the clan. And God blesses her with twin sons. And to yes. me, what greater blessing could there be? Hey, That's right. That's right. And Judah turns his life around. I mean, at this point, he's been running from his own family. Yep. And, and it, uh, such a sign of that is his own um, misbehavior uh, in, in this incident. But after this, he, he reconciles or, or accepts his role as a son in his own family yes. and, and sets his foot on the right path. So Tamar doesn't just produce heirs, but she also, if you will, delivers her father-in-law from the path of destruction that he was so uh, intent on pursuing. And I just found that so, so helpful. And it gets lost when we just fixate on a label that the narrative gives uh, Tamar, even though we as the readers know it's a false label. She's not actually a prostitute, right? She's not, um, she, she's actually doing what she's supposed to do in yep. carrying on the family line. Yep. I just found that so, so helpful. Hmm. Um, when we get to Rahab, and you, you mentioned this, that Rahab is identified in scripture as a prostitute. Yeah. She also keeps an inn, um, a place where uh, people are uh, can stay overnight in their travels or when they come in for market day or whatever. Um, but you, so you take that, uh, that bit of evidence, but then you talk about how she sees what God is doing in a way that no one else does. Well, Joshua sends two spies in because they want to cross over into Canaan and Jericho stands in the way. It's a huge walled city. Uh, interestingly, Rahab lives on the outside of the wall. So she's um, socially outside because she is a prostitute, but she's got some independence. She seems to own her own home. And as you say, run this in. And the spies, instead of um, spying out the land, as they're asked to do originally, tend to head straight for the inn. And um, somehow the king gets to hear about this and sends his troops off to Rahab's house and says, you know, send out the men that have spent the night with you in your inn. And uh, she hears, she must hear somehow that they're on their way. 
So she hides the men on her roof under flax. I love the, that little bit of extra detail there under the stems of flax. And so when the uh, men come to uh, ask for the spies and say, send them out, she wonderfully, as a comic bit here, sends the king's men, said, look, they've, they've just left. If, you, if you're quick, get outside the city or catch up with them. And the city gates are shut. And of course, the men are there all the time. And she goes up to the men and uh, says goodnight to them and says, look, I know the Lord has given you this place. Um, and I know the Lord is God of heaven and earth. We we stand in fear of you. We've heard what's happened in the past, and we know that um, you're gonna you're going to get this place. And she says, "I want you to. I've been loyal to you. That word Hesed. I, I've I've looked after you. I've saved your lives. Will you save my life and the life of my family?" And um, they have a bit of toing and froing and. Um, bargaining over this and she eventually lets them down over the side of the city on this cord and they said if you hang a piece of red cloth at your window we will make sure that when we overrun the city you and your family will be saved Um, and when these spies go back to Joshua they actually repeat Rahab's words to him and I just found that significant as well. It's She was the one who had the faith to believe that God could give them the city. Um, and eventually, uh, in chapter six, we're told that when the city, and you know the story of the walls of Jericho, she and her family are saved. Um, they live kind of in a slightly liminal position because they live outside the camp of Israel, but they are saved. Well, and I just, I find that again, when we, if we focus on the, the idea that Matthew uh, is presenting her as a sinner saved by grace, we miss the point that she actually, and you bring this out so well, um, that she actually is the voice we're to listen to. She's the yes. one that confesses uh, who God is and what yes. God is doing. And the, uh, I find it also kind of interesting that at least in the few pieces that I've read of commentators who talk about the spies, they they are often quick to say, now, of course, the spies were just trying to hide. They weren't trying to use the quote unquote services that yeah, might be provided right. in Rahab's Inn. And I think, huh, so how can you be so confident about that, which the biblical text says absolutely nothing especially when these spies are not uh, this, these courageous, God-fearing, God-promoting men. It's Rahab's voice that actually makes these claims. And uh, that, that gets, she, she just gets sidelined, again, because we have this assessment of her character um, that is kind of... Um, I mean, it's it's there in in the text that she, uh, as a as a pagan woman, uh, did things that were acceptable in the pagan world, but um, but nevertheless, she saw beyond that and be, and becomes a model for us. So uh, yeah, and I also have to ask her, you know, what pushed her into prostitution? Yeah, exactly, exactly. In fact, uh, one of the earliest um, commentators. Uh, a Jewish man by the name of Josephus who lived in the first century AD 
he talks about the fact that really she's an innkeeper, not a prostitute. Yeah. So from the very beginning, this idea of calling her a prostitute um, has been debated even by uh, Jews themselves as they've looked at at this mm -hmm. text. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, um, one of the, um, uh, you know, we've talked about Ruth a bit, and as you mentioned, most of our listeners probably know that beautiful, beautiful story. What I love about your telling of that is your insistence on Ruth as being assertive as making decisions uh on her own and um uh yeah and and kind of making a way even though of course she's also very def uh, deferential to her mother-in-law but mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how we see ruth uh making up her own mind and and making decisions hmm. well clearly the first very tremendous decision she makes in the first chapter is to stay with Naomi as Naomi travels back to Bethlehem. Um, they've Naomi's lost her husband and Ruth and Orpha have lost their husbands, Naomi's sons. And I don't blame Orpha for going back actually. And Naomi encouraged them to go back, go back to your to your home and, and find a husband and create a new life for yourself. So I, I can't possibly have sons and even if I could have them tonight, you know, would you wait for them to grow up sort of thing? Because Ruth, like Tamar, is also a Levite widow in that sense. But she chooses to stay with her mother-in-law and those beautiful words, you know, where you go, I will go where you stay, I will stay, your people will be my people and, and, and where you die, I will die and your God will be my God. And from that moment on, she is committed to Naomi and utterly committed to this rather bitter old woman because Naomi, when she gets back to Bethlehem, says, she don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, bitter, because the Lord's hand has dealt bitterly with me. Um, and so they arrive back, they're penniless, they're, they're one of the poor of the land, but they've got to eat. And so Ruth takes the first step. She says to Naomi in chapter two, look, let me go and glean. Let me go and pick up the ears of corn at the edge of the fields, you know. And, and Naomi says, okay, my daughter, you go. But actually, that's a very risky thing to do. She's a Moabite widow. So the Moabite women were associated with the minds of folk in Bethlehem, as we're told in Numbers. They, it was Moabite women that led the Israelite men into apostasy and sexual sin. And so she's kind of got this... Uh, image clinging around her, probably of, of a loose woman, right? And she goes into these fields and it just so happens that it happens to be Boaz's field. I just love that sort of background sense that God is at work here, even though he's not mentioned. And Boaz notices this very attractive young widow and asks who she is. And the former says, look, she's been working really, really hard all day. Uh, she's Naomi's Moabite daughter-in-law and as we know the story um, Boaz offers her food and drink and says stick by my women I'll make sure the young men don't molest you and she works right through the two harvests but she has to to go out as a strange woman into foreign fields and do that I think that took a lot of courage um, absolutely yeah. Absolutely. And then the next chapter, okay, uh, Naomi has this plan, a wonderful mother-in-law plan, 
she's obviously hitching her up with Boaz. Interestingly, Boaz, although he's a really upright, good, generous man, he hasn't made any moves. And Naomi thinks we need to do something here. And so she has the suggestion that Ruth dresses up and perfumes herself and goes down at night to the threshing floor, which, as I've already mentioned, was a pretty courageous thing to do. But interestingly, it's Ruth who proposes to Boaz in the middle of the night because Boaz wakes up, finds this woman at his feet, says, who, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Spread the corner of your cloak over me, which is basically saying, will you marry me? Um and so, again, she takes the initiative to encourage Boaz to, to marry her and to, um, as you know, that there's a little bit of a complication with um, the uh, Mr. So-and-so, I call him, because we're not giving him a name, the close relative. Um, but in marrying Boaz, it solves both her if you like, issue as as she is accepted into Bethlehem society, she bears a son, and the son is for Naomi because it, it actually it's it draws Naomi into that family circle, gives them security, gives them a future. Who is that son? Well, that son is Obed, and he is the grandfather of King David. So it's a wonderful story, but again, I think we tend to see it's a rather romantic perhaps rosy coloured, but actually it, it it was, and her loving loyalty, her chesed, her loving loyalty towards Naomi in that situation is quite outstanding, I think. And, and Boaz realizes that, right? Again, if yes. we stay in the text, Boaz affirms her. He's yes. similar to how Judah talked to Tamar. You are more righteous than I. Boaz recognizes you're right. Here is my responsibility. I need to move on that. And he praises her. And he also praises her for thinking so highly of Naomi and her family responsibilities. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah, we don't want to, I, I have found at times people uh, over-sexualize what might be happening or not, you know, on yeah. the threshing floor. Uh, and and they, they got to pay attention to the dialogue and what the the characters are actually saying and how it fits in with that ancient story, which you do such a beautiful job of bringing out. Oh, thank you. Well, um, before that, yeah, it, well, I just cannot encourage people enough to take a look at Mothers on the Margins. Um, wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. Mm. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about her before we get into Mary, because Mary's also, we want to spend a little bit of time on Mary. But um, with Bathsheba, I guess my question would be for those who say that Bathsheba bears some responsibility in enticing David how would you respond to that I think the text gives us clues as to how we should read Bathsheba um, right at the beginning of the chapter in in 2 Samuel we are told that um, David's armies, it's springtime, and David's armies have gone out to fight. And yet David himself hasn't joined them. And so he's kind of taking a little easy and has an afternoon siesta. He's strolling around on the roof of his palace. And I got to realize that his palace was probably one of the highest places in Jerusalem. And he looks down and he sees this woman bathing and she's beautiful. And so he's immediately lusts after her. 
um, as not as if he hadn't already had enough women of his own, but he sends messengers and he says, find out who she is. And she's a woman of some standing, but he doesn't hesitate. He sends for her, he has sex with her and he sends her home. But we are told that the reason she was bathing was to purify herself from her monthly menstruation. So presumably she was doing this every month. It just so happens on this particular month, the king catches sight of her. We're not actually told that she was completely naked. And she then sends a message and it's two words in the Hebrew, basically, I'm pregnant. And and that completely then sends David into a spin. He murders his, her husband, Joab, who's one of his top 30 fighting military men by proxy. And then he marries Bathsheba. So the text comes to an abrupt halt, if you like, at the end of 2 Samuel 11. But it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And I guess most people know Nathan has this parable about the rich man who has loads of lambs and this poor man has this one little lamb who he treasured and cared for and the rich man sends and says look I've got a traveler come give me your lamb takes a lamb and slaughters it and David is furious he's absolutely furious and he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And then there's a pause and Nathan says to David, you are the man. And he goes on to say that, you know, he'd been anointed as king over Israel and yet he'd taken Bathsheba. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him. And so it's quite clear that Bathsheba is the innocent lamb. Exactly right. And that, you know, I've had some pushback as I've talked about this passage. People have said to me, but, you know, she's bathing. Why is she out there trying to attract a man's gaze? And as you point out, David's not supposed to be there. I think moreover, as you point out, we don't know what kind of clothing she has on or how much water she uses. Yeah. The Israel, I mean there it's it's not like it's right next to a lake i live in chicago you know we've got lake michigan <laughs> it's pretty big you know one of the great lakes um there there's nothing like that so yeah. did she have a jug of water that she used uh for her monthly ritual purity rites um you know it's it's uh it's a very uh limited commodity to have yeah. water and so we're, i think to imagine she's in a jacuzzi on her back <laughs> porch under a floodlight is just <laughs> yeah. absurd. But yeah. that's sort of how people, I think, imagine it. And some have said, well, wouldn't she have known that he could see her from uh, his porch? And I think, you know, again, and, and I've, I've asked some Old Testament archaeologists, um, you know, that we're not entirely clear about even the dwellings that that Bathsheba would have been in and familiar yeah. with. And, you know, that the fancy castle built of wooden stone might be very different than a tent that she would be used to. In other words, there's a lot of reconstruction 
we just can't do because we don't know enough yeah. to be able to kind of lay this out on a stage, yeah. if you will, you know, and put it up there. But what we do know, and that's what you point to is Nathan is very clear at the end, you are that man. Yeah. And God from at the very beginning says, David should have been out to war. Yeah. And that's what we need to focus on. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you then, you mentioned Mary, uh, and Mary is treated differently here in Matthew than how Luke presents Mary, which you had mentioned, you know, as we started this conversation. Um, what do we learn from Matthew's presentation of Mary? Because I, I, I have to say, typically, the scholar, scholars will say that Matthew minimizes Mary, but you don't, you don't think he does. So talk a little bit about what Matthew is doing with Mary. Yeah, well, of course, Mary is the final person mentioned in the genealogy. And she is mentioned as the mother of Christ. Um, and she isn't given an awful lot of coverage in comparison to Luke. You're quite right. We're, we're not, the angelic revelations are given to Joseph. Um, and the main focus of the passage after the genealogy is on Joseph. Um, and then again, in chapter two of Matthew, we're told about Herod and, and the plot to destroy Jesus and the Magi uh, coming and visiting. Uh, again, it's interesting, they're Gentiles, right? So the first people to worship the Christ child are, are Gentiles. And um, the child and his mother is repeated five times in chapter two. Um, and Joseph, in obedience to the angelic compounds, takes them and of course they flee to Egypt. So Mary is actually given no voice of her own. Uh, she's completely passive apart from bearing the child, giving birth to the, to the child. And when we have to imagine her situation as, as a, a young woman who is, is pregnant first um, and she doesn't know how Joseph's going to react to that, right? And then in chapter two, as someone who was a young baby, very young herself, having to flee at night to a foreign country. So she's in danger in both situations. But yet, I argue that Matthew's account isn't a birth narrative like Luke's. I argue that it's an account of Jesus's origins. Um, first of all, his origin as son of David, because at the end of uh, Matthew 1, Joseph names Jesus, and that's his way of adopting him. So, okay, that's how Jesus became son of David. And then in the second chapter, at the end of the chapter, we're told that they eventually settle in Nazareth and Jesus became a Nazarene. So he's, his geographical location is explained, even though he was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth. But, you know, Jesus is son of David through Joseph, but he's son of God through Mary. And it's that unique experience of the spirit that Mary has in the conception of her son that makes her stand out theologically. And I think that she's, well, I just find that concept that Jesus is son of God through Mary quite, quite mind blowing really. Oh yes. And as when, again, when I read this uh, in your book, I, I thought, wow, this, that's, 
utterly sensible. It makes total, uh, total sense to me. And I had not seen that before this focus that we're really, we're not to read Matthew through Luke and create a nativity scene. We're, we're supposed to be thinking of genealogy, but now in kind of a narrative form, um, and, and locate Jesus there. It also, as you point out in the book, it also allows for the Holy spirit to take center stage. Yes. Right. Yes. And so it's the spirit is the one who gives life, uh, in Mary's womb and who of course protects this child and his mother, uh, through, through all of the, uh, drama that is going to unfold in the next couple of months as they flee. Um, yeah, once, once I decoupled Luke's drama from what Matthew was doing, it really allowed for me this idea that Mary is quote unquote silent, it made me think, no, 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 no. She's just witnessing to the Holy Spirit's work in her. And that's what we want to hear is how the Holy Spirit moves in her, uh, in bringing, uh, the Messiah literally to life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the emphasis on the child and his mother, you know, Joseph doesn't just take the child, the child and his mother emphasizes to me how obviously totally dependent this, this little baby was on, on Mary for sustenance and life that had been given through the Holy Spirit. And as you say, God is the divine actor in these scenes. You know, the others are responding in obedience to, to, to God, but God by his spirit is the one who's who's overseeing it all. Yeah. And you just bring that thought to life, that truth uh, uh, to life throughout throughout your book. Well, I, um, I have loved your book and it is such a treat for me, Anne, to talk with you about these women in Matthew's genealogy, your book, Mothers on the Margins, um, is just a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic resource for every, everyone. I, it should be in everybody's shelf. How oh, I, thank I, you, Lynn. And now, I, and, and, uh, and I have to tell all the listeners, Anne told me, don't embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> but here I am doing that. So I'm sorry, but it's really terrific. And I so appreciate you coming on the Alabaster Jar and sharing your wisdom with us. And um, I wish you all the best. We're recording this right before uh, Christmas. So I want to say a happy Advent and Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you very much, Lynn, uh, and to you. Advent blessings to you. And, and he is coming, hey? Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed today's conversation, check out Anne's book, Mothers on the Margin, The Significance of the Women in Matthew's Genealogy. We've left a link for you in this episode description. And don't forget to subscribe and join us back here next week for another new episode of The Alabaster Jar.